I'm looking forward, so much forward to tonight's uh, topic. Tonight's topic is going to be on grace. It's block number seven, and we're talking about grace. And forgive me for recapping. I, I, I cannot help myself because I always imagine there's that one who is here or is, is there listening who did not have the opportunity or the advantage of hearing how, uh, how we've gotten to where we are. So uh, allow me, if you would, just a little bit to recap and if, uh, if you've heard it before, let it be a form of reinforcement for you because it certainly doesn't hurt to hear it again and again and again. Amen. And so uh, uh, basically how we got to where we are to block number seven is that we started with a call to the nations for humble prayer and strategic discipleship. In strategic discipleship, we found it was necessary to build our house the believer's house, this tabernacle in which we now uh, 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 steward for God to build this house according to God's plan, line upon line, precept upon precept, a block here and a block there, not too much at one time and not just shotgunning it, but to strategically place another block in the building of our lives. It's important that believers know what they believe. And so I have taken this opportunity of this whole year to, uh, to go back over a number of things, one each week, of what people should believe, what believers should know. And I want to nail it down so strategically and so definitely that you leave here with very few questions. I cannot exhaust any one subject, but I can introduce it to you and make some important points. So we began week one with God, you know, being one God. Uh, we're not a polytheistic culture, although some of you that are listening were raised in polytheistic cultures and believing in many gods and many goddesses. We want you to know that the Bible declares there is but one God. His name is Jehovah. And it's important that we choose to embrace one God and the, the only one true and living God. It's important that we choose. That's what Joshua said in Joshua 24 and verse 15. He says, if you really believe that Baal is God, serve him. If you believe that some other God is God, serve him. He said, but as for me and my house, we make a choice today. We are going to serve Jehovah. I have made that choice and I am challenging every one of you. Do not dabble in Christianity. Christianity Christianity is not something and Jesus is not someone you can just add to your other religions or to your other gods or mix with some other religion. Only one has the chance of being true. If the Bible is true, every other religion is false. If any other religion is true, then it would cancel out all others. And if for some reason you have a, you know, what is uh, many times uh, has been offered to say that all roads lead to heaven, let me tell you, don't fall for that because then you are denying every religion. No other, no, no religion. You know, Islam, uh, Hinduism, you know, no religion is, uh, uh, you know, uh, believes that other religions are all true, okay? That cancels out everyone. There's only one truth, okay? And as for me and my house, we believe Jehovah. We also talked about creation, how that God created the heavens and the earth. 
He made him from things that if we were there, we would not uh, see them. Things, the Bible says, which did not appear. God, by his spoken word, divinely orchestrated and created heaven and earth. And he fashioned the earth, and what we now see was a creation of God. Neither the Big Bang theory nor evolution can account for all the things that we now see. God created the heavens and the earth by his own design and by his own desire. We also talked about him creating man, you and I. God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, Genesis 2, 7 says, and man became a living soul. We are made like God in his image, three parts, yet one being. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, our body, our soul, our spirit. We are made like God and we will exist forever. You will exist forever. The only question is, where? We also talked about how sin was introduced in seed form in the garden. The serpent introducing with a subtle conversation a seed of separation so that when the serpent left, this seed of separation in the mind of Eve began to take its own course. And as she gave it harbor in her life, it grew. Soon it came to the place where it overwhelmed her and demanded a choice. Sin's desire was to separate. And when Eve sinned and gave that fruit to her husband and he partook, that sin separated. Number one, it separated man from man. Adam and Eve realized they were naked. They hid themselves from one another. So did uh, aprons of fig leaves to hide their nakedness and hide their shame from one another. Number two, it separated them from God. Number three, it separated them from the Garden of Eden. God drove them out of the garden, representing all that God had planned and all the blessings and all the goodness of God. It separated them from God's blessing on planet Earth, His temporal blessing. And then number four, Sin separated man eternally from God. We found out that sin separates, and sin has the power to separate us eternally from God, and you have sinned. We also found out that there was a sacrifice made, that the only thing that could cure sin was blood. The blood of bulls and goats were a temporary remedy. God instituted this even in the garden. As we understand, he clothed Adam and Eve with skins. Somewhere he got the skins. It's reasonable to assume and understand that he sacrificed and by that blood he paid temporarily for the sins, but not permanently and not eternally. For the blood of bulls and goats or sheep or lambs or dove couldn't in no way permanently deal with the eternal stain of sin. And so mankind had to leave the garden. Let's they partake of the tree of life and live forever in a sinful state. So God looked through the ages and ultimately found in his son a perfect sacrifice for only perfect innocent blood, only the blood of a pure spotless lamb could take away the power of sin to damn a soul to hell. 
And thereby, when Christ gave his life as a sacrifice on Mount Calvary, willingly offering himself the just for the unjust, he took upon himself the sins of all mankind. He died for my sin and died with my sin. Final payment was made and a way was made available for me, for you, to enter into a relationship with God. Jesus entered into the grave with my sin. Only someone standing in death could defeat death. God knew this. It was a plan all along, a very strategic plan from God. He orchestrated it so that Jesus, with my sin, with your sin, would be accepted into death because of the sin that was upon him, but yet he stood innocent. You see, only someone in death could deliver a death blow to death. God had to legally and strategically get Jesus into death, the Bible says, to destroy him who had power over death. Satan no doubt thought he had won because here the Son of God could be held for ransom. Imagine what he thought he could use this leverage for for eternity. But yet Jesus said no. One can take my life. He laid it down. And because he willingly was innocent and willingly gave his life, he stood with the power of resurrection in the very pit of death. And when he got ready and death had been paid for, he triumphed over Satan, over principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly. He bruised the devil's head as was prophesied by God in the Garden of Eden. He took the keys of death and hell and by the power of the Holy Spirit rose from the grave on that third day victorious over death, sin, hell, and the grave. And he lives forever. Amen. What a tremendous story we have heard so far coming from you know, this discipleship, these blocks. We're here now to learn another block, the block of grace. We often say it and we use it and we often access it and we are in such need of it. But what is grace? Uh, for that, would you turn with me? In your Bibles to John chapter 3. The book of John chapter 3. In the book of John chapter 3, perhaps one of the most familiar verses in all of the Bible, certainly in all of the New Testament, is John 3, 16. And this is how it reads in the New King James. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, when sin separated mankind from God and sin destroyed the plans that God had for his man, and we entered into a time in which God would now have to deal with sin, God could have just been made to feel sorry for mankind. 
the love that God had for, for mankind could have motivated God to feel sorry. It could have caused God just to be sad uh, for, for his continuing concern for mankind and his plight. It could have made him mad. It could, have, it, 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 it could have made him feel sorry. It could have made him feel sad. It could have made him angry. God's love that he had for mankind, it could have just simply hurt God. In all of these things, being sad, being angry, uh, you know, ha- having concern, uh, uh, feeling sorry for someone, all of these things could have driven God back into a corner. It could have caused God to abandon his plan. But instead, we see that God's love motivated him to act. Instead of just feeling sorry, instead of just feeling sad, instead of just getting angry, or instead of just being hurt, God's love motivated him to give. God so loved, he gave. That is the picture of grace. The grace of God. You see, God was not obligated to give. He gave because he is full of grace. Let's begin our important points tonight so that we can better understand and get a handle on what the grace of God means to us. Number one, grace is the unearned, unmerited, and undeserved goodness of God Towards all men. You see, God so loved the world that He gave. He gave not out of obligation, not because He had to, but because He's full of grace. Grace is the unearned, the unmerited, and the undeserved goodness of God that He shows toward all mankind. Can you imagine yourself for one moment to be put in his shoes? I tried to write a story today that would in some way describe what God was facing, but I could not do it justice because we cannot understand this level of grace. I tried to write an account so that I could make a greater commentary so that those of you who are listening and following and teaching could could better understand or get a better handle on it. And I found myself coming up short. Or I wrote a few stories. One was about a man uh, who who was a very, very rich man, a very wealthy man who knew a very poor man. And this poor man had had kidnapped and and tortured and raped and ultimately murdered a friend and and was judged and sentenced to, to a horrible punishment and to endure torture and even and after long years of enduring torture in isolated chambers of prison, he was to uh, die a very gruesome death. And through the years, this very wealthy man tried his best to help. He would visit and he would, he would talk to this person in prison who wouldn't hardly give him the time of day and he would try to help them to, to live a better life in prison, hopeful uh, to gain them some, some, you know, uh, some, some honor, some blessing, some, some, some joy, something in prison. But no matter what this man did in prison, his destiny was still the same. Nothing could be changed but this rich man and, and out of his love and out of his care for no other reason than just the heart of his love continued to try to help but finding nothing uh, that he could do petitioned a law in that day 
that an innocent man could trade his life for a guilty man's sentence. I wrote how this father raised a son, his only son, a beloved son, and shared with him the plight of this poor man. And how this father convinced his son who wished there had been some other way, but how he convinced his son to go and trade his life for that poor man. Now the poor man didn't care and cursed him and didn't understand and wanted nothing even to do with the man's father. But not only did he trade his son and his son went to pay that price, but then, then uh, when the poor man was released, he wanted nothing to do with the father. But yet the father pledged his son's inheritance and gave it to him. Gave him not only his freedom and his life, but everything his son would have inherited and continued day after day. But I could not, I could not fathom yet the grace of God. I still couldn't paint a picture of what God did for us. To put ourselves in the shoes of someone who is not obligated and who has been hurt and betrayed who has been abandoned, whose enemy has been given everything. I still could not describe the grace of God. So one of the next things I could say about grace was that grace provides. That's all I could say. Grace provides. It's the unearned, unmerited, undeserved goodness of God towards mankind. But this grace, to better uh, understand it, I couldn't do it in a story, but just to tell you, grace provides. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. That's grace. Grace provided you everything that Jesus had before the foundation of the world with his father. He took our place. He became poor that through his poverty we might become rich. That's grace. Grace provided for us all that Christ had. That's grace. Not obligation. Love gave. That's grace. Love in action. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. That, that's the grace, of, the grace of God. Again, is there providing. Grace provides. It's by grace, the unearned, undeserved, unmerited, unwarranted, unfathomable goodness of God towards man. Not out of obligation, but out of love. That's grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 7. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. He's talking about the grace of giving. You know, because grace provides. He's hoping that we also will become providers out of our grace. 
out of grace, not out of obligation, but out of love that motivates us to action, that we would also be partakers of this grace and abound in the grace of giving and of providing. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, the apostle Paul said, I rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Number one, grace is the unmerited, unearned, the undeserved goodness of God towards man. Number two, grace provides. And number three, grace is sufficient. No matter what we need, God's grace is enough. Not only does it provide for us, but it's more than enough. Just as the Apostle Paul declared, my grace is sufficient. It is all sufficient. Whatever you need, I promise. His grace is not only enough, but more than enough. You see, there's this great storehouse of grace. It's the inheritance that Jesus has. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And we can access this grace. That's what God wants. He so loves, he gives. He has provided and it is sufficient. His grace will be sufficient for you. Number four. Grace is God giving more than he has to because he wants to. That's grace. I thought about God's grace today whenever I asked someone to do something for me and, and he gave me a price. I said, how much will it be? And he told me what it would be. And when I went back to pick up what I had him to make for me and, and uh, I, I asked him again, uh, well, how much do I owe you? And he told me and you know, uh, you know what I did? I just gave him extra. He didn't know how to deal with it. People often don't know what to do with grace. They don't understand it. But I said, here, let me give you this. Thank you. Grace is giving. God giving more than he has to because he wants to. Ephesians 2 verse 7 says that in ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Number five, God's grace surpasses man's sin. In understanding grace, we have to realize that grace is greater than sin. God's grace surpasses man's sin. God's grace is bigger than your ability to sin. That's what it says in Romans, the fifth chapter in verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace abounds much more than sin abounds. And number six, if I can paint this picture for you, there is an inexhaustible supply of God's grace. An inexhaustible supply. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's unmerited, unearned, undeserved goodness from God. It's designed to provide. 
And it's more than enough. It's more than sufficient. And he gives it not because he has to, but because he wants to. And he gives more than he has to. And he gives to the point to where it can completely surpass your sin. There's an inexhaustible supply. You see, God can give grace to whomever he wants, whenever he wants. God gives grace when he wants to whoever he wants. But when it comes to you and me, when it comes to us accessing God's grace on our own, when it comes to us wanting something from the storehouse, wanting something that Jesus owned, wanting something that he paid for, wanting something that God has granted us as an heir, when it comes to us accessing this grace, which is inexhaustible, which is God's provision, which, which he gives because he wants to, God can give it to anyone. He wants to anytime he wants to. But when it comes to us accessing this grace, The best I can tell you tonight is that there is an entry point into grace. And there is an access code you will need to open that door. Everything that God provided for you on the cross of Calvary is waiting for you. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know if you died, you'd go to heaven? I'm going to pray a prayer with you. If you'll sincerely pray this prayer with me, mean it from your heart, you will be saved. And you'll know that if you died, you'd go to heaven. Pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I realize that I have sinned against you, but I am willing to repent. I choose to repent, to turn away from being a sinner. And right this moment, I open the door of my heart, and I take you, Lord Jesus, into my heart to be my Lord and my Savior. I give my life to you. Fill me, Lord Jesus, with your Holy Spirit. Thank you for coming into my heart. Thank you for saving me. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, it's very important that you contact us because we have some information to help you get started in your Christian life. I would like to write a letter to you so that you can know how to win your friends and your family to Christ. And then we'll send you other information to help you get started. So here it is. Remember, realize that you've sinned against God, choose to repent, and receive Jesus into your life. Jesus said, Him that cometh to me, or her that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. So if you come to Him, He will not cast you out. You can know Him and know that you're saved and know if you died, you'd go to heaven. And then share that with others. It's so important that we be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. So call us or email us. Please let us have contact with you so that we'll be able to help you along the way in your Christian life. Find a good Bible-believing, praising, worshiping church and join that church so you'll have a pastor to help you as you go along in your Christian life. God bless you. I believe that God is going to do great things in your life.